We are in the home stretch of our series on heaven and hell. We've been a lot of places, hopefully deepened our understanding and uh, had a better appreciation and more 3D, perhaps, understanding of, uh, of these realities, present realities, future realities. So we have a couple of weeks left in this, in this series. Last couple, we, I mean, we went through um, all kinds of different things. I mean, about treasures and mansions and crowns. And, and good people don't go to heaven, but forgiven people do, right? We've been talking about just works versus you know, rewards and grace. Talked about the devil one week. Talked about hell. That was hard last week. This week's about heaven. And I don't know, I, I don't think that you mind me messing with your preconceived notions about hell so much. You're not, uh, some of you, worried about that. But you might be a little more rattled about heaven. But I hope, I hope that we can all come to a biblical centered, Jesus-centered idea of, of heaven. Some people, I think, are turned off of Christianity entirely because of bad versions of the truth, half-truths, cheap versions, two-dimensional stuff that Christians feel okay about but don't really capture the imagination. I think unbelievers sometimes just scoff at us. You know, it seems sad, but I've almost tried to stop using the word heaven when I talk about new creation. It's a completely great word. It's a Bible word. It means a lot. But what people see when they hear the word heaven is something like this. It's just clouds, a staircase, maybe a gate perhaps. And that's just really the limitation of what a lot of people will, will see when they hear the word heaven. They think that. And that's so much more than what that is. That's so in- inferior to what the Bible has to say. I think over the years, artists have tried to capture on, on film or on canvas what these passages are like, especially from the book of Revelation. But a Bible scholar named Tim Mackey has said that when you read the Revelation, you're not supposed to have a little movie going on in your head. When we read this stuff, we're not supposed to ask, what will this look like, as much as, what does this mean? John speaks in imagery and metaphor so much steeped in the Old Testament scriptures doesn't mean it's not real. It means that he's using imagery and metaphor to to explain things that we just have no imagination to really capture. And I think the best way that I could come up with a way to explain this is the art of political cartoons. Take a look at this one. Now, this is the most like unpartisan one that I could find. But imagine if you plopped this picture in front of a first-century Christian somewhere in the Roman Empire. The, the text behind this were, was like, and the donkey was full of wrath at the elephant, pointing with a finger out of its face toward the elephant, his enemy, and a hat that, said, that had, even had a horn that said, Dem. And the elephant was also very wrathful. And he also pointed with many fingers toward the donkey, his enemy. And he also had a hat on his head with a pointing finger. I mean, what kind of ridiculousness would that be for a first century Christian in the Roman Empire? They would have no idea what you're talking about. But you look at that and you think, oh, oh, I get that. You know, Democrats, Republicans, they're always blaming each other. They're always, you know, pointing the finger. They're always trying to assign blame. And We get it because it's our culture, it's our political system, it's our country, it's our language. But you plop that in front of a first century Christian in the Roman Empire, they'd have no. This is exactly why you really don't think that there's 
donkeys and elephants with fingers pointing out of their faces walking around the Capitol building, do you? I hope not. But when you see pictures like this out of Revelation 12, you think, Revelation 12, a woman about to give birth. She had stars over, she was standing on the moon. She, had, she was confronted by a dragon. And then there was uh, the earth, you know, split open and, and water came and rescued them. This isn't a literal image. There's not going to be some seven-headed dragon pop out of the ocean somewhere. That's the stuff of movies. That's, the, that's Godzilla. This is imagery. This is metaphor. The next one out of Revelation 13 is the same way. The beast out of the land and the beast out of the sea. There's seven heads, ten horns. There's a beast out of the sea that people worship and there's, you know, stars falling from heaven. I don't think that anybody really thinks that there's going to be a seven-headed, multi-horned uh, leopard thing come walking out of the water someday. It's imagery. It's metaphor. This is my favorite out of Revelation 17. Uh, this is a resurrected Tyrannosaurus rex. Here's a dinosaur with seven heads on it. There's a woman, if you could see, riding on this ferocious seven-headed beast with ten horns, and she is drunk on the blood of the saints. Well, all you got to do is read further into Revelation 17, and John actually explains all of that. You know, the seven heads or seven hills on which the city sits. I mean, it's all explained right there. It's not a dinosaur. It's the Roman Empire. So what, what are we supposed to, not, not what are we supposed to see, what does it mean? And God allowed the prophets and apostles to see these realities in certain ways to tell us something. Sometimes John wasn't even allowed to write down what he heard. He couldn't explain what he saw. He bent the limits of language trying to tell us what it was that his eyes were able to see. And he had to boil it down into these things because his audience, these first century Christians under great suffering and persecution under the Roman Empire, needed to know there was hope and victory in Jesus. And he had to almost write it in code so that they understood it, but their oppressors didn't. We need to, to read through the lens of Jewish apocalyptic literature so that we know what it means not what it looks like. So when we hear about new creation, when we hear about heaven and eternity, we need to also have these lenses on so we can see the full beautiful truth, the history, the love of God, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, why all this matters. So it doesn't come off as boring or cheesy or at worst, just a place that's better than burning for eternity. And the hardest part about this whole thing is waiting. I don't know if anybody likes waiting. Anybody? Just, I want a red light. Just give me a red light. Give me the longest line at Walmart. That's what I want. No, nobody wants that. You spend more time walking back and forth than you would if you just sat in line and got there, right? We don't want to wait any more than we have to. Living between the promise of something and the realization of that promise is difficult to do. But do you remember when you were kids? And you anticipated, you wanted Christmas to come. You couldn't wait. You had a calendar and you were marking off days. You wanted your birthday to come. And you were just, man, when is my birthday? When's my birthday? When's my birthday? And you wanted that, that day to come more than you could stand. Your parents couldn't stand you anymore. Like, oh, please, Christmas come because this kid's driving me crazy. Because what happened to your parents? 
Well, they grew up, and they stopped waiting very well. They didn't get excited about stuff. We, old people, we've lost the childlike wonder. One of the reasons I think Jesus said, you can't enter the kingdom unless you have the faith of a child, unless you become like a child, is I think kids just anticipate and love. They hate it, but they love and they're excited for what's coming. And they think about it, and they, they dream about it, and they write things down about it, and they jump up and down, and they even get in trouble because they can't contain their enthusiasm. It's coming. And sometimes I think us Christians, we just, well, you know, it's been 2,000 years since he said he was coming. And I guess it'll happen, you know, one day. Honestly, I think some of us have gotten downright cynical. We've, we've been lulled to sleep, which is exactly what Jesus said not to do. Don't go to sleep. Keep alert, waiting for that day. I think there are two groups of people in the room today. There are people right now who know that Christmas is 52 days away and you're already excited and you're panicked at the same time. And the only reason that your tree isn't up is because you put your Halloween stuff away and your family wouldn't let you put the tree up yet. Anybody like that? Then there's, there's some people in here that are like, Christmas? What? Oh, that's next month? What day is that on? Anyway. I mean, honestly, you're not worried about it until Christmas Eve. And then you're like, oh, in a big panic. Like, oh, i got to go to Walmart. Oh, i got to get this, this stuff. You don't care. You're just not bothering you at all. It's, waiting is for other people. Let them get excited about it. And you've forgotten what it's all about. Pressure makes the procrastination better, right? I think that heaven is not just an eventual future. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. It is near. The kingdom is within you as a Christian. And he's already in the business of new creation. It's not just out there sometime in the future. It's now. that This has always been God's reality, always been his heartbeat. The Bible itself is one big long story, as the guys in the Bible Project put it, one unified story that leads to Jesus. And the Bible is bookended from Genesis to Revelation by very, very common themes. Take a look. The first three chapters of Genesis, the last two chapters of Revelation, God made the heavens and the earth. There's new heavens and new earth. God made light. God gives light. It was very good. And there's nothing impure. There's a tree of life in the garden. And guess what? There's a tree of life in the new creation. There's also a river in Eden. And God says there's a river of crystal clear water. There's gold in the land in Genesis 2. And the streets are made of what? <laughs> Adam and Eve were put there in the garden to work it and care for it. And it says in Revelation 22 that we will serve God. In chapter 3, God sought fellowship with people. And then it says in Revelation 21 that he will dwell with people. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve. And then at the last part, the devil's cast into the lake of fire. As a result of the sin, God increased pain but then there's no more pain. The ground is cursed, but then there's no more curse. And to dust men return, but then there's no longer any death. In chapter 3, verse 24 of Genesis, they were banished from the tree of life. But in Revelation 22, 
We have access to the tree of life. But we want to know, what will this fully realized eternal glory be like? We've got some real questions that the Bible might just hint at, might not, but I've tried. I think, and I think the Bible teaches, that, the, that new creation is a physical place, that we will have physical resurrected bodies. Philippians 3:21 says, He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. A resurrected physical body, not, not riddled with sin, not riddled with sickness or pain. And this is not some immaterial existence floating around on clouds. We were created as a physical body. We were meant to enjoy eternity in perfect physical existence. Adam and Eve, given the access to the tree of life to be able to flourish, but they instead chose to disobey. So the new heaven and new earth is a restored and redeemed reunion of heaven and earth. God's space, our space, one space once again. So if we have physical bodies in the new creation, will we eat and drink? Well, I sure hope so. Don't you? I mean, Jesus himself ate and drank with his disciples in his resurrected, glorified body. What I see in the language of the Old and New Testaments is about banquets and rivers and fruit trees and fine wines and feasting. Just think about your senses right now. Your, your five senses. If we can taste wonderful things right here on earth, who says we won't have greater ability to enjoy food there as it was meant to be enjoyed? If we can smell freshly baked banana bread right here, who says your sense of smell will be any less there? Are your eyes failing? Not so a new creation. What is it, this visible spectrum of light that we can only see so much of? What if you could see infrared? What if you could see ultraviolet? What, what if you could see all kinds of light waves that we can't even, without instruments, even know they exist? What about sound waves? That you can hear certain things, but you can't hear others. What about a sense of clarity and wisdom and learning and not having that morning foggy brain? Oh, let's get rid of that. People want to know, will we remember our lives here in this existence? And I think there's evidence that we will. Revelation 6, verse 9, says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they'd maintained. And I want to time out just here, right here because today, well, worldwide today, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I've put that off a week, and this will be my text um, next week. The souls of those who had given their lives because they were witnesses, they were martyrs, and they were kept in an, a special place. They were under the altar. Interesting placement. And again, what is, not, not what it looks like, what's it mean? They asked that a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They remembered what happened. They remembered being decapitated on a beach somewhere. They remembered being tarred and feathered, and they remembered being burned at the stake. They remembered the torture that they underwent. They remembered the bullet they took to the head, and they said, How long until you avenge our blood? Revelation 21, 4 says, God will wipe every tear from their eye. 
I don't know, there any more picture of comfort besides a mom or a dad wiping away of a tear of a child. But what are the tears for? And why are they there in new creation? Why is God wiping away a tear? Is it sadness? Is it pain? Is it regret? Is it joy? Is it, is it something that I'm remembering but I'm just going to let it go of because God is here now and he's comforting me? There's language all throughout the book. God dealing with evil in dramatic and final fashion. And here in Revelation 22, verse 2, along the river there's trees bearing fruit every month and it says the leaves are for the healing of the nations. The nations need healing, don't they? And these leaves, these, these trees bear leaves that will serve to heal. And Jesus himself bore the nail marks on his hands and his feet and the wound in his side in his resurrected body he was covered head to toe on the cross with lashes and blood and, and he was just laid open all over the place. But every one of those wounds were healed, save these. And maybe it was just for his disciples to be able to identify him, but I wonder if it was just because someone needs to remember that. We need to remember that. And then in Revelation 19, Jesus is described as a rider on a white horse He's called faithful and true, and he's dressed in a robe, get this, dipped in blood. Kind of gory. But he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And in this passage, he's preparing to make war against the beast and against the false prophet. He hasn't gone to war yet. He's preparing to go to war. So what's the blood for? Well, there are some people who say the blood is his own. He's overcome. And he shed his own blood, and that defeats the enemy, the slain lamb who took away the sin of the world. So how is this city? What's, what is this bride? How was it described? Take a look at Revelation 21. 21 verse 15. There's all kinds of, uh, of other places in this chapter uh, about gates and, and jewels and, and all kinds of things like this. But I'm going to focus in on this, chapter 21, verse 15. John says, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and the gates and the walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod, found it to be 12,000 stadia, about 1,400 miles in length. It was as wide and high as it was long. So we're talking a cube here apparently. And the walls were about 200 feet thick by man's measurement. And the wall made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. So what is it we're, what is it we're supposed to know about this? Is this artistic mathematical equation kind of thing, is this the new Jerusalem that's 2.5 billion cubic miles? that's descending from heaven? Is, it gonna, is this big cube thing going to land on the planet and be a city? Well, you know, God could do that if he wanted to. He absolutely could. And that would be pretty awesome to roam around and you know, spend an eternity finding all the holes and crevices and whatever. But I don't know. What, what does it mean? Not what it looks like. What does it mean? Maybe that's what it's going to look like. I don't know. But in a book that's filled with imagery and metaphor up to this point, is that supposed to be a literal picture of the New Jerusalem? I'm challenged by that. 
It is a place of enormity. It is a place of unimagined splendor and glory. We're told in that chapter there's no temple there. What's a temple for? A temple is a place where people go to be with God. No need for that. We're all with God. God is with us. There's no need for a special place to go to visit with God because God's everywhere with us and we're, we're with him. The lamb is ever present. And I'm caught by the last part of chapter 21, verse 24. It says, The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. That's interesting. On no day will the gates ever be shut for there's no night there, because that's what they did back in the ancient days. They shut the gates at night, because that's when people would come in and do bad things. But there's no night there, no need to shut the gate. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What does this tell me? I think this tells me that people of every tribe and language and nation that bear the name of Christ will gather there. This is a very diverse culture. It reflects all of God's amazing variety of humanity. And there'll be art and music and feasting and creative energy. I think it will be a place of learning and growing and building and work. What will we do? I think this idea of heaven as a perpetual vacation might sound great for two weeks, but then again, what are we going to do? Everybody wants a vacation, but you know, you got to get back to work sometime. We were made, our vocation was to care for creation. Humans were made in the image of God, to be industrious, to use their abilities to improve and serve. Humans who not just can't work, but will not work, are not fulfilling their God-given role as people who add value to the world. They lack purpose and fulfillment those who will not work. But here, work will be without weariness. Work without trouble and and toil. Work will be like a good day of work ought to be. Very fulfilling, refreshing, reward, satisfaction. And what on earth will we do forever? (laughs) I mean, honestly, The question behind that, what if I get bored? It's kind of shameful to ask because no one wants to think that being with God can get dull. But as John Piper uh, once asked, who cares about living forever if you're bored? It's the enemy of every child. I'm bored. You've only been at this 10 seconds. I know. You know, it's like we're, we're no different. There must be something to this that makes it an obvious, obviously a better option than hell. I think if all your imagination can do is sit on a cloud and sing, that might be okay for a while. Honestly, it might be fine. But you need to get, some, some of you don't even like singing, honestly. And some of you, you know, you might feel bad about that. But don't. You have other gifts. You have other talents. You have other things you're good at. And you make the world a better place by doing. Our view of eternal life needs to be completely Jesus-centered. If all we can think about is ourselves and what we're surrounded by and what we're going to get in a big house and lots of rooms and seeing loved ones, that's good, but it's not, the, it's not the point. If we can't see Jesus as a centerpiece of our eternity, we're forgetting how we even got that promise to begin with. Again, John Piper says, the only way to keep heaven from being boring is to believe in a God 
who is eternally satisfying. Listen, Revelation 22, verse 4, that really small phrase, they will see his face. I mean, all through Scripture, you can't see God's face and live. There were people that were really close to God that could see his back or that could see his kind of a glory, but not really, you can't see God's face and live until now. Does that make anybody's heart jump just a little bit? I mean, it's kind of a wonderfully terrifying thought that you could actually look God in the face and then you wonder, what was I even worried about? Why was I ever troubled? This creator loves me. If you've ever been unsure about eternity in the the new creation, steep yourselves in these scriptures. Pray through what this might be for you. If it's not your reality right now, if you're looking at this going, well, I, I know I'm, I'm outside of the walls. I, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Then you need to get with one of us and we need to talk about this because this is, this can be, this is everybody. This can be everybody. By faith, a gift through Jesus. And the rest of us who are who've signed on to this but have lost our childlike ability to wait and anticipate and, and think about wonderful things We need to read and we need to imagine and we need to pray and we need to surround ourselves with other kinds of books, other people's thoughts and meditations on this new reality, on this new creation. And you wonder, well, when's he going to quote C.S. Lewis again? Now's your time. The Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have seen the movies. You need to read the books and you need to grab the last one, the last battle, book seven, where they finally get into Aslan's country they finally get there and they begin to explore and the the phrase further up and further in. And Lewis writes a paragraph about Aslan and it says, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful I cannot write them down. And for this, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read. It goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Keep reading scriptures with this reality in mind. You'll see, it, you'll see it popping up where you did not expect it. Like in Acts chapter 3, Peter just healed a beggar. He's on his way to the temple, and he's explaining himself why he did what he did. And he's talking about the resurrected Jesus. He said in 321, he says this, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago, through the holy prophets. Now, wait a minute. Hang on a second. You mean that this new creation talk is in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Look at Isaiah chapter 25, and I'll finish with this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, an aged wine well-refined, He'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I don't know if your salvation has gotten boring. I don't know if your Jesus is distant. But you read these kinds of passages very long and you begin to get this childlike kindling of excitement back up in your heart again and you just can't wait to go home. Don't stop anticipating. Don't stop. Don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Keep your eyes open. Wait for him because no, you can't miss him when he comes. It's not going to be a secret. I hate to tell you, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And after that, we who are alive will be caught up together to greet him in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. Let's pray. Well, there's so much about this reality that, uh, that sparks our imaginations. We don't know what to do with it sometimes. It's so confusing. And we don't know quite what you're trying to tell us. But we do want one thing. We know one thing. That it will happen. Jesus is coming, and you've promised it. And we have, as, as people of faith a hope because of the cross, because of the blood of Christ that is shed for all people for the forgiveness of sins that we might receive that gift. Thank you for the, the place that um, where, where love ran red. And if, there's, um, if we need to know more about that, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in every one of us to bring us back to wonder and amazement repentance and confession and long for that day of your appearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.